0: We are so glad to have you guys here tonight. Thank you for being here. I'm really glad to be here. I'm glad to be standing here right now. Uh, I spent the afternoon trying to fix toilets in my house, and just before I had to get ready to come here, I definitely broke one of the toilets I was supposed to be making better. Um, And I would never claim to be a great preacher, but I'm a better preacher than I am a plumber. And so uh, I am glad to be back where I belong. and I, I am excited about tonight, uh, not just because it's a 14 year anniversary, that's great, uh, and that is fun and uh, really weird to think about as we've kind of been spending 14 years, I feel like walking on the bridge that we're building um, and trying to kind of figure this out as we go. Um, I am excited about that, but I'm also excited about what we are going to begin talking about in the next few weeks. Uh, if you were here last week, and I, and I just posted the talk like an hour ago, I forgot to post it earlier this week. Um, uh, We began uh, what we'll call kind of a series about our practices and what we talked about last week was the encounter that Jesus had with the religious Pharisees of his day where they wanted to know why his disciples uh, didn't behave religiously the way they thought they should, why they didn't uh, clean their hands in a certain way and purify themselves and eat with what they call defiled hands or really the Greek is common hands. Uh, before, uh, you know, clean up those common hands before they would eat? And, and why aren't your disciples acting the way we feel like they should religiously? And so we talked about this idea that religious practice um, is it's the framework we give ourselves, right? We, we, we build this framework in which we can try and exercise and understand who God is, uh, who God wants us to be in this world. It's, it's uh, the disciplines that we put in our lives so that we can see God's love more clearly and not just float through this life without thinking. However, it is easy for religious practice to start to become the point instead of becoming the thing that points us towards what really matters, right? And, there, and it's easy for us to begin to miss the point. And so we began to consider last week the idea that what we do should always be considered, should always be examined. We should always be asking ourselves, why are we doing the things we're doing? Why are we practicing religion the way we're practicing religion? Why do we practice our faith the way we do? Why, uh, how do we ensure that we do not, like the Pharisees we read about last week, miss the point altogether? And again, my, my claim from last week was that uh, the answer to kind of bad religion is not no religion, it's, it's good religion, right? It's good religious practice. And so we wanted to take a few weeks and just talk once again, kind of turn the mirror back on ourselves once again and talk about why we do the things we do. Um, Much of what we do may not seem totally unfamiliar to some of you. Um, If you've been here a long time, it's kind of just the way we do things now. But we don't want to do things just because that's the way we do things. We want to talk about it. We want to lay it out. And we want to think about how we practice our faith communally. Because it matters. And we don't want to get to the point where we do things just because that's what we do. Um, And it seems appropriate to me that we start this series on our anniversary. And we start this series with what really is the kind of... Uh, foundational compulsion we have as a community, the founding idea. And that founding idea is servanthood. It's service. That is at the very core of what we started, why we started 14 years ago to create this new set of religious practices for those small group of people that were together. And And I'm going to talk to you a little bit about kind of where that came from and about our very kind of formational kind of story. Tonight's part sermon, but also just kind of part storytelling. And then we're going to have Sharon come up, who's much better uh, at all that than I am, uh, and talk a little bit about how that's manifested itself in the last 14 years in the community. And it, and it is always tempting uh, when, when you get enough distance between you and when something began, uh, it's always tempting to mythologize the beginning of something, right? To kind of Make the beginning of things a little different than they were, to make it kind of a myth out of it and make it sound a little more grandiose. Uh, But the problem is we just don't have much to work with in that sense. Uh, We don't don't have the makings of good mythology. Um, I would love to tell you that, you know, uh, I was shipwrecked on an island and the Lord appeared to me in a pillar of fire and commanded me to go to Hattiesburg, Mississippi and start a church and to do the church this way And, you know, and I said, you know, if you save me from this island, I will do your will, Lord. And then I came here and God speaks to me audibly each week about what I should tell you. And it's just this really big, beautiful thing. That would be, that's a great story. Uh, It's just nothing like that ever happened. Uh, This church started with um, this really weird thing. There was just a handful of people having conversations about God and asking questions about church, trying to figure it out. We just were all kind of in the same place and we sat around and got together every couple weeks and we had these conversations. There were no tongues of fire, there was no audible words from God, uh, just people talking, asking questions, praying. And the main unique thing about this small, and I mean a small group, a handful of people, uh, probably seven or eight people sitting in a circle. The main unique thing about this group is that we are mostly unencumbered. Now there are a couple other pastors that, that, that jumped in on these conversations who wanted to talk about things that they kind of couldn't talk about at their own church at the time. They were trying to figure out how to be pastors in the context they were in. And so they weren't totally unencumbered. They had institutions they were part of and all that. But the rest of us uh, at the time either weren't in a church anywhere or had just left a church or were kind of on our way out of a church and all of us were trying to figure it out. I, I, was, I was greatly unencumbered. I was what they call unemployed. Uh, I, had, I mean, I had nothing holding me back, right? Um, we were unattached. Uh, there was no institution to protect. There was no building to pay for. There was no payroll to make. There was no budget. There was no committees. There was none of that. And and I do think that ends up being a little bit of um, what was unique about how this whole thing got started, because we we had the chance to put everything on the table. Because um, there is no history, right? There is no well. That's the way we've done it. That's the way you're supposed to do it. And it was people came from different kind of traditions and and everything. So it was just people interested in what church could be in spite of what it had often, so often historically been for them, right? People with a sense that they were still committed to and found value in church, but felt a call for them, not for everybody, but for them to do something a little differently, to, to prioritize some other things, to think about why we do what we do. And ultimately, those conversations led to a lot of stories. They led to a lot of laughter pretty good amount of food if I remember right because it was all good spiritual things have well, you know a lot of prayer but what we didn't get out of it was handwriting on the wall what we didn't get out of it was a bunch of brand new answers to old questions and I think that's a good thing in fact I would, I would ask you to be very wary of anyone who has brand new answers to very old questions like, like we've all been waiting for them that's a bad sign Right? That's the beginning of what we call a cult. You should run away from that. So, we didn't have all these brand new answers, but what did come from it was new questions. For us in that room, new questions came. And some of those questions were very haunting questions. They called us to account for why we believe what we believed, what we believed, why we practice the way we practice, what we do in this world. And those of you that know much, much about our kind of founding, there was one question in particular that ended up being this thing that we talked about kind of week after week that none of us could quite shake. And I don't know where the question came from. Um, so one of us heard it someplace. But the question was this. The question was, if your church disappeared whatever, a mini-rapture happened, whatever, I don't know. Like one week the church is there, the next week beamed up to heaven, however you want to say it. The church was there, it's no longer there. If your church disappeared, would anyone besides the members of that church know it was gone? said, if your church disappeared, would anyone besides the members of your church know it was gone? In other words, the sum total of all the work and all the worship and all the things that are going on within the walls of your church Is the sum total of that effort for its own sake? Or is it doing something outside of itself? Is it accomplishing something outside of itself? And this question really bothered all of us. And I think it bothered us all in the right ways, right? Because most of us confessed that much, if not all, of our past church experience did not really look great in light of that question. We'd all served in the church, gave to the church, made time for the church, participated in church. We'd all committed so much to church in one way or another. And yet, it was pretty much for the sake of that church. I remember as someone who was being paid to be a minister, you kind of have this goal of what you want to accomplish with a person. I have a Sunday school room full of people. And maybe I've got two or three people in that room that in my mind, I think they're my all-stars, right? They are who I I wish I could get everyone to be like that person. And I want them to all be like Bill because why? And then I I thought about the list. For me at the time, most of the church work I had, I want more Bills because Bill um, shows up for Sunday school on Sunday morning. And then Bill shows up for church after Sunday school. And then uh, Bill gives like 10% of his money to us, right? And then Bill shows up on Sunday night for the Sunday night service too. And then on Wednesday night, we have a dinner and a Bible study, and Bill shows up on Wednesday night as well. Well, we've also got children's uh, stuff and youth stuff and, uh, and all these kind of things that are going on through the week. And Bill volunteers all the time for that stuff as well. And, and he serves on the, on, on the committee that we have to determine uh, what carpet color is most godly in our sanctuary. Uh, and he's on the finance committee. And Bill does all these things. And we need more Bills. In fact, if I could grow everyone in this room into a Bill, I would be a successful minister. That's what I'm trying to do is move people along that line. And that's great. And Bill was terrific. What a great guy Bill is. The problem is... I have just occupied every spare moment Bill has. I've just occupied every spare dollar that Bill has. I've just occupied all of his extra effort and time and energy. And yes, we as an institution in these walls are a little better and a little stronger because we've got Bill. But I've effectively removed Bill from the community. If Bill disappears, I'm going to miss him inside these walls. But Bill's not coaching Little League. Bill's not serving on a school board. Bill's not doing anything out in the community because I've occupied every single thing. He's not given to many charities. I've taken all the money. I've, I've brought him all. All of it is here, right? And so we, we were really bothered by this question. If functionally speaking, the church removes its people from the world instead of sending it into it, what are we doing really? Given that all of us only have limited resources, limited time, limited money, limited energy, limited amount of love that we can give in the world, given the fact that we all have limited resources, if the church can't demand all of it and leave anything for anyone else, right? And most of us kind of confess that our church experiences were that we were trying to get a room full of people that gave everything to the room. In this sense... You could even make a strong argument that the surrounding community was worse off because our church existed. Less money for the community, less volunteers for the community, less time given to the community, because we've occupied it all. We ate it all. And in that case, you could argue that if the church disappeared, no one would miss us. No one would miss us except the people there. In fact, maybe the Methodists would get lunch five minutes earlier because we weren't in line in front of them. Right? If the church disappeared, it might, could possibly even be a net gain for everyone outside those walls. That was a haunting idea to us. And it just felt like it shouldn't be like that, right? We just couldn't imagine that this was how church was intended to operate. If the church was intended to be the physical presence of Jesus in the community, the body of Christ, then shouldn't the community be measurably better with it there? Shouldn't we be missed if we disappeared? If the way we did church did not result in a better, stronger world, a better, stronger community, then what are we doing exactly? Right? And we began to think about that and unpack that and look at the life and teachings and ministry of Jesus and how the earliest forms of church did what they did. And we felt like it came to a few ideas, but one overarching principle kept coming up over and over again. And that principle was service, servanthood. That the underlying posture of Christ and Christ's kingdom in this world and the early church uh, and their understanding of how to do church was based in service. Right? Matthew 20, 25 through 28 says it well. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ was here to serve, not to be served. The church should have that same posture. We don't exist to gather unto ourselves. We don't exist to build an institution. We don't exist to increase and build a huge building and a big budget and, and make everyone ooh and awe over how many people show up and, and participate and get eaten up by our group. We are here to serve. We exist for those who aren't here. And so that's what we decided to do. We decided before we do anything else, before we come up with a budget, before we come up with a plan for how we're going to do church and church growth and discipleship, and da, 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 da. before we do any of that, we're going to serve together. That's going to be our first thing. That's our first step. In fact, our discipleship program will be serving together. Right? Our, uh, our reaching out to people outside the church will be serving together. It's all going to rotate through this idea we decided that everything else in the church would grow from the impulse to serve as Christ served. And that is where our partnership with Hawkins Elementary School began. Because as that the couple of pastors that are part of that group kind of ended up having to go back to their churches and do their thing, and we ended up having this group of people sitting around saying, I don't know where to go church, but I'm willing to try and be church with you guys. And so we said, okay, see you at the house next week. And then when we decided we were a church. If we were going to hire someone to come and preach every week, or to serve the community, or to organize the community, we were going to hire someone to work in the community outside of ourselves as well. And so, when they brought me on, they hired Sharon. And there's no one, no one better equipped to talk to you about how this has manifested itself for our community uh, out in this, out in the community, out and particularly at Hawkins Elementary School. So what I'm gonna do now is I'm gonna invite Sharon to come on up and tell us a little bit uh, about
1: that. Let the church say amen. Let the church say amen. This is gonna be fun. (laughs) I just wanted to make sure you would respond. Thank you. Okay, so I wanna echo what Mike says that there was nothing glamorous or romantic or fancy about our start. Oh no, the first two weeks on the job was awful i cried every day literally i'm not joking i spent most of my time alone in what was essentially a storage room do y'all remember where uh Calvert's office is now it was it was really a room that you don't show people and they cleared out a space put a little desk for me margie willis was then the principal there and that was our avenue to go to hawkins the only person that appeared happy to see me was Margie Willis. I'm convinced that every other staff member thought I was a spy for the superintendent. They were like, hmm. I'd be like, hey, can I help you? I'm good, okay, cool, cool. (laughs) So a week or so later, I was still trying to find my bearings. There was a huge shift in the world. It was 9 a.m. on a rainy Tuesday morning. I was in the front office when a second grader walked into the door soaked. Ms. Outlaw, who, the sec- who was the secretary then, she had been there for literally like 20 years. She knew everybody in the community. Um, so Ms. Outlaw was in the process of giving him a firm look and a lecture when another parent walked into the door behind him. The parent walked in and explained that as she was leaving for work, she saw Larry, the second grader, walking from Briarfield Apartments across Main Street. It was still raining outside, so she wanted to offer him a ride, but, but another car pulled up to him instead. She watched the exchange and got a funny feeling and decided to follow the car to see where it would take him. Fortunately, the person in the car was a good Samaritan and brought Larry to school, but she thought someone in the school should know what happened. Outlaw then proceeded to question Larry, who brought you to school? Larry, did you know the person you got into the car with? You got into the car with a stranger? Every red flag in America was being waved at this entire exchange. The parent headed to work and outlaw finished her lecture with the firm, don't you ever get into the car with a person you don't know. Anything could have happened to you. Now Larry was upset and scared because he realized that he may have done something wrong. He got emotional, and in return, I got emotional. Um, But the school officials got angry. Outlaw called Margie Willis, and let me tell you something. Don't let Margie fool y'all. Margie is the sweetest person, the sweetest smile, the sweetest hugs, but Margie Willis will fight for children. Margie Willis was fed up. Margie called the parent and there was no answer. They had left several messages at home because Larry was late to school almost every day. This was the final straw. The resource officer was sent to the home to tell the parent that if they had not come to the school the next day, the school would be forced to involve child protective services. The message was delivered. I spent the rest of that day angry and frustrated, and I asked if I could attend the meeting so that I could possibly meet the parents, and maybe they would allow me to pick Larry up for school every day. The next day, I was ready, and I mean like fight club ready, nothing to do with the Lord, nothing to do with the Lord, fight club ready. Then Larry's dad came in. Larry's dad came in, and they told him the events that had happened the day before and what had happened, and that something had to change. Two seconds into the story, the dad started to weep uncontrollably. Through his tears, he starts to tell us. I knew that was going to happen. Through his tears, he started to tell us that he works nights. He worked the night shift, and he sleeps most of the day. And Larry was never home when he made it home from work, so he never knew there was a problem. He actually thought the girlfriend was waking up and getting the kids to school. In fact, he had to quit his job to attend the meeting today. What I learned in that meeting was that parents love their kids and they provide for them in the best way that they know how. That often means working two jobs to put food on the table or making whatever sacrifice is needed for their kids. I was prepared for Larry's dad to be the bad guy, but I was missing major parts of the story. He didn't need me or us to rescue him, but he sure could use an ally. He didn't have extra time to read books or help with academics, but we could do that. What he needed was a neighbor who was willing to lend a hand when needed. That moment shifted the meaning of service for the rest of our life, seriously. Service is showing up and knowing that every person has a story that started before you and will continue after you. The question is, what will you do with the time God has placed them in your path? Before Neighbors, I had had life-altering mission experiences to other countries, to Mexico, and, to, and twice to Africa. In fact, I had to go to Africa to become friends with Toby. I didn't like him before. I didn't. But in Africa, I saw him differently. I know it's, it's, a, it's a long story. But the bigger question that neighbors and what Hawkins did for us as a community, and for me personally, is what does it mean to be on mission in your own community? What does it mean to be on mission in downtown Hattiesburg? What does it mean to be a neighbor? The mission of Neighbors at Hawkins is to assist in providing quality education to all students at Hawkins Elementary by direct tutoring, effective volunteering, connecting financial resources to the needs of teachers in the classroom. To build self-esteem by mentoring interacting with students and exposing them to new opportunities through extracurricular activities. And third, to expand the personal vision of students for themselves, their community, and their world. As I prepared today, I thought about the idea of a blank campus, figuring figuring it out literally as we go. The first community project that we did was paint the cafeteria. We painted murals with overhead projectors. I can't even believe they allowed us to do that. The only person who was qualified to paint in that room was Colby. Nobody, the rest of us, we literally, it was paint by numbers. Um, but we were willing to paint. Even though we were unqualified, we were willing. New people still come in to Hawkins and they look at the artwork in the cafeteria, but there's so much more to that story. Similar to our teachers and our students at Hawkins, there's so much more to the story. They invited us with open arms to walk beside them, see the children and the families close up and join in the work. We've been able to add and maybe edit a few chapters of people's lives. We've been able to add to the beauty. We have so many stories. Literally. We have served students by sponsoring everything from school school supplies to uniforms. We have aided parents in paying light bills and sponsored Christmas presents for 30 to 50 kids, not hoping that WDAM would show up, but behind the scenes so that the parents maintain their dignity. We have bought violins and cellos. And here more recently, We have bought cleaning supplies. Oh yes, we have wiped out Walmart and Sam's. But that's what our neighbor needed. It can't be about us, it's how do we serve our neighbor. Who knew that Clorox wipes and Lysol could change the course of someone's day? 10 years ago, we brought on tutors to provide additional support in the classroom. With the AmeriCorps program, When we recruit tutors, we look for people who understand that education is often the great equalizer and often the best shot that our students have that we can offer them abundant life. We try to recruit tutors with ambition and drive to finish school so that the program can assist them in achieving their goals. When we recruited our first AmeriCorps tutor, Ms. Keys, she was working at the DMV in Forest County. If purgatory does exist, it might be at the DMV in Forest County. She admittedly felt like she was out of options and didn't see a way forward to continue her education. With the Education Award through the AmeriCorps program, sponsored by the Neighbors at Hawkins program, the people in this room. I'm proud to share that Ms. Keys finished her bachelor's, then went on to get her master's, and now she is the assistant principal at Petal Middle School. <laughs> I know it's incredible. But before she made a public announcement, she sent a text message and said, I know where this started, and we are part of her story. And countless others have left us and gone on to remain in education and even become certified educators. In 14 years, there are only three people in the building who have been there as long or longer than neighbors at Hawkins. The people who come in hear the story and the people who have moved on message to say, they miss us greatly. We have attended graduations, weddings, baby showers, court hearings, and funerals. We have cried tears of sadness and abundant joy, all connected to a building, 526 Forest Street. It's an unlikely relationship that has enriched the lives of both communities. If you stick around Hawkins long enough, you'll hear someone say, what will we do without you guys? but don't get it twisted. The real question is what would we do without you? Or rather, what would we do without each other? And I do believe that that is what God intended. So as I get ready to wrap up, um, I told you that our first project was uh, painting the cafeteria walls, where our youth group that is led by James and Lacey May they also came in and painted a wall this, this year, well, over the summer. Do we have that picture? Great. Um, so, this, I mean, isn't that gorgeous? I mean, it's like just sin- sincerely gorgeous. Okay, so I'll tell a little story from this year as I, I wrap up my time. Um, so, this year, um, when I, there's a, there a kid named Jaden. And I was, I walked into the building and he's actually Mr. Duncan's student, Mr. Duncan's back there. Um, I walked in the door and, and Jaden was clearly upset. And I don't know if he was having a, a reaction to having the mask on or if he was having a panic attack, but he didn't have his inhaler and I knew that he was upset. So I walk in the door and Mr. Duncan says, hey, can you stay with him while I try to get grandma on the phone? Um, we need his inhaler. We need to get somebody. So we go into the auditorium and I asked Jaden if I could go get him a bottle of water. I said, I think that may help you calm down. Okay. Okay. So I go get a bottle of water, come back in. And he's at this point he's crying. So I know that, um, the, the situation seems to be escalating. So I had picked up books, ordered books that, uh, to read. And so I opened my backpack and I asked Jaden if I could, uh, read. I said, "Hey, I'm planning to read some books this morning. Would it be okay with you if I still read those? But I may have to read aloud." And he goes, "Oh, okay, okay." And it was the caterpillar and the butterfly. And so um, I say, "The caterpillar and the butterfly." He goes, "Wait a minute, wait. Are you gonna read it to me?" And I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, is that okay? Can I read it to you? I'd love to get your feedback because I want to make a script out of this. If, what do you? Yeah, is that okay?" He goes, yeah, that's okay. Okay. So, uh, so I go in reading the book, and the book is about a caterpillar named fear and a butterfly named faith. So we go through the book, and the caterpillar at the end of the book learns to have a little more faith and not be as afraid. So I asked Jaden, I asked Jaden how he felt about the book at the end, and he goes, oh, man, that was a really good book. You know, that book really calmed me down. I think it'll be good for the kids here. And so he gives me a thumbs up and I'm like, okay, well, thank you so much. And in that process, his grandmother had come in, um, with, uh, with his inhaler and she was going to take him home. But I I tell that story to say, there are more stories to tell and that wouldn't have happened if we weren't present, you know? And he doesn't know. I mean, now I have a friend, actually, this is Jaden in the picture. Um, he doesn't, he doesn't, I don't know if he'll ever know, um, what, just that little, that little moment of calming him down, helping him see that you're going to be okay. But it certainly worked until his grandmother got there. And grandmother was very appreciative, et cetera, et cetera. It also freed Mr. Duncan to do other things. He has a whole classroom that he needs to take care of. Does that make sense? That is what being a neighbor is. So there are more stories to tell. There's more work to be done and new relationships to build. The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. All things are ordered under our call to love God and our neighbor as ourselves. Thank you. And that's
0: that's really, that's the core of who we are, right? We exist, we come together, we sing the songs we sing, we do the sermons we do. We, we do all of this not for us. We do it to be sent out to serve. Uh, and, and Sharon's got it right. I hope, I hope we have made a difference at Hawkins. I, I feel certain we have uh, over the years. But there is no doubt that we are fundamentally different because of our time there because serving is not just about helping someone who may not have something you think you have to offer, may not have enough time or enough energy or enough money or whatever, and you can offer that. That's great, it's not just about helping them. Anytime you've served, you know, serving changes your DNA, it changes who you are and it has absolutely fundamentally changed us as individuals and as a community. And so as we go forward talking in the next few weeks about who we are, about why we do the things to do, why why do we gather together publicly? Why do we baptize? Why do we dedicate kids? Why do we do all these different things that we do? Always remember that all of it is to form us into the kind of people who then go out into this world and serve the way we were served, love the way we've been loved. That is why we're here. That's the point. And so uh, I'm... Thankful to Sharon for uh, sharing those stories. Uh, thankful for all of you who have given time and energy and love to Hawkins. I do also know that we, we don't say you have to be at Hawkins. Hawkins may not be your place. You may be serving somewhere else in some other capacity, and that's great. Go forth and do it, right? But serve, it will change who you are. Um, what I'd like to do now is pray and kind of prepare us for a time of communion and then uh, we'll have the final song with the band after that. But will you please join me uh, in a time of prayer right now? God, we are grateful that you are the creator of all things. That there is nothing in all of the cosmos that did not come from you, that you are bigger and more transcendent than we could ever wrap our minds around. And yet you, God of the universe, came to this earth. You took on flesh and blood. You dwelt among us. You learned what it meant to be human to feel we feel, to, to have the same hunger we have, to have the same pain that we have, to bleed as we bleed, to breathe the same air we breathe and kick the same dirt, that you as the God of the universe took flesh and blood and dwelt among us because you are love. And you know that the only kind of love we can wrap our hearts and minds around is the kind that has skin on it. It's incarnate love. It's love that we can see and experience that you are a God of the universe who came to this place and looked at little us and said, I'm not here so you can serve me. I'm here so that I can serve you. God, there is, may we never stop being amazed at that. May that never stop disturbing the way we look at the world and view ourselves and what's important in this world. May we never stop grappling with the beauty of that idea. And God, help us to be a community of people, to be individuals who walk into this world. Serve. Serve because it changes who we are. Because it is part of what redeems us and saves us and converts us into the loving beings you'd have us to be. God, we are grateful that your table is big enough for everybody, that there is enough of your bread and your wine to go around. God, we ask that we might be a people who embody your love and your service in this world. God, we do love you. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.